Rick Stevens, financial advisor with FRS Financial Group, securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this program are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. For more detailed information regarding any of the topics discussed on today's show, please call 719-500-8700. This is Money Matters, presented by FRS Financial. Here's your host, Rick Stevens. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of Money Matters, presented by FRS Financial Group. I am your host, Rick Stevens, and folks, remember that this is your show. If you've got those questions you'd like to have answered, if there is a topic you want to hear a little bit more about on one of those future episodes of Money Matters, feel free to give us a call at 719-500-8700 or send me an email, rstevens at frsfinancialgroup.com or simply go to that website, frsfinancialgroup.com. Click that contact tab in the corner. Send us that question. Send us that topic you'd like to hear more about. We would love to hear from you. Well, folks, this week on Money Matters, we are joined, as always, in studio by my co-host, Andrew Rogers. Andrew! We're in the in the in that uh, tween period between uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas. Yeah, the, the the tween. I like that. Although it feels like we've been in the Christmas season since about Labor Day. Uh, I want to say that's about the time I saw all the stuff out at Costco. Yeah. So all the all the blow up stuff for the for the yard. Because I you know I got to say this though, all the blow up stuff in your yard. I think mm-hmm. that's cheating when it comes to decorating. I don't know. I I know some people that are really into it. I don't know. I just can't get myself there. Yeah, I, uh, I I put up lights on my house once back in 1998 yeah. in Chicago in November. And when they came down in June because of, you know, snow and then the inability to just find the time mm-hmm. to get up there, I said never again. Yeah. Now I've got about a 25-year streak of never again. Yeah, see, I, I went all out. I put up a couple wreaths on the uh, outdoor lights and... There you go. So, so you didn't go full Clark Griswold no. on anybody then. No. Okay, that's that's all right. That's all right, folks. Joining us this week in studio is Evan Withrow with the folks over at Steiner, Zendejas, Burrell, and Will Helmy, because I know Ian and Chris need a little billing on that too. And uh, we always have to throw out that disclosure that the guests who appear on Money Matters are not endorsed by LPL Financial or FRS Financial Group. And now, for the next 40 minutes of Evan's disclosure as well. <laughs> no, we'll try and make it short, and I appreciate you having me back, Rick. Always um, always fun to be here and chat about a few things with you guys. Uh, my disclaimer simply is that anything we talk about today is just general information. If you have specific uh, legal questions or need specific advice for your particular situation, uh, give me a call, reach out, and we can talk about it. I love that because, a- Andrew, we would never ask uh, specific questions about our situations on here, right? No, no. I mean, this this is a this is your show, not uh, not not us to be self serving. Right, right. Of course, we're doing the public's good. That's right. That's right. And just if we have a hypothetical friend, yeah, that's all we're asking. And if about. that friend situation happens to mirror something that might be on our minds, hey. 
what whatever it is because we're just the common guy yeah. right we're, we're the common man the common folks here yeah. we have those common questions hey. and that first common question i've got evan are there any changes that are going into effect for 2024 as we're headed into that because i know that uh you know the estate world sometimes you get some changes here and there and wherever and every once in a while i i, I know that uh, at the federal level they like to make a change on say December 30th, that'll be effective January 1. Any, anything that we have some heads up on going into 2024, though? Sure. Uh, I'll be honest, not a lot changing in the estate planning world. Uh, the thing we always tend to keep an eye on year over year is the estate tax limit for um, the IRS for the, feder- for the feds, um, which is kind of one and the same for the gift tax limitation. It's what they call a unified credit. Um Right now, this year, it was at $12.92 million per person, which means that you can have an estate worth $12.92 million and pass that along to your heirs tax-free. Next year, the projection is going to be about $13.6 million. Um, But something to keep in mind there is that the major increases on that tax limitation um, are part of a tax bill that will be expiring at the end of 2025. So it'll take a, a decent step back. We expect um, supposed to be $5.5 million adjusted for inflation. So our expectation is going into 2026, it'll be about $7 million per person or $14 million per couple per spouse. So just a few things to kind of think of here in the next couple of years if you are a high net worth individual um, congratulations. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we can do some of that tax planning and things if you're looking to do some gifting or, or or things of that nature to make sure your estate plan avoids some major estate tax implications. So, so Andrew, what I'm hearing is you've got some planning you need to do in the next couple of years to make sure that your estate falls below that you know, potential seven million dollar threshold. Yeah, we, yeah, we gotta, we gotta do a little bit of moving around. We gotta allocate <laughs> some assets. And I mean, with that in mind as well, you know, we are coming up on the end of the year as well, so that might bring a lot of people getting documents out, digging through things. Uh, what should we be looking for? Maybe would this be the time to get in line, get in queue for maybe a review, kind of look at what's changed over the course of the past year or two when it comes to all of that estate planning? Sure. I mean, that's that's a great question. In terms of timing, I'm happy to talk with people about estate planning at any point in time. I think year end's always a decent um time to think about that. And that's just because people tend to shore up a few different matters around that time. Uh, And there have been some more major changes here in the last few years. And I'm sure Rick's talked about it across various shows with the SECURE Act. There's kind of the SECURE Act 2.0. There's some different things moving. And and some of that affects us as estate planners. Some doesn't. Um, But there are definitely components of it. And if you haven't had your estate plan looked at in five plus years, it's probably worth a look just because of what's changed here in the last four or five years. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm free anytime, and my recommendation is always, hey, if you haven't looked at it in a long time, and kids are a lot older, that's something always worth reviewing. Yeah, and that's uh, that's one of those things, uh, especially if you've if you've got kids, and and maybe you put something together, you know, six, ten, twelve years ago, maybe you didn't a have as many kids at that point in time. Uh, or maybe your kids, you know, you, you've had them all, but it's been, you know, a decade since you've looked at stuff. I oftentimes like to tell folks when it comes to looking at and, and making sure that all of the estate pieces are in order, math is the important uh, sort of component here 
because it's in the family. Have you had any additions, subtractions? Have you multiplied the family? Have you divided a family, right? Are there births? Are Mm -hmm. there deaths? Are there marriages? Are there divorces? Those are oftentimes good times to sit down and and really go back over your plans, right? Absolutely. And and one of the things we tend to see more often than not is unfortunately when there has been a subtraction to a family. So say a parent passes away and then adult child or family member is the one that's responsible for handling the estate and they realize that mom or dad maybe didn't have things quite as buttoned up or as in order that they would have liked. Um, And what happens is that has a major effect on the family members that have to deal with that. And so they tend to say, all right, well, I'm going to take care of mom and dad stuff. Let's finish that up. And then immediately they turn to their own estate plan because they understand the importance of making sure things are in order for when that time comes. Because um, John Steiner of Steiner and Zendejas has always told me, we all have one deadline. We just don't know when that is. So um, better to get these things in order sooner rather than later. Yeah, absolutely. And and for those folks out there that that maybe are thinking through and going, yeah, but doesn't it cost a lot to to have an attorney go set this sort of thing up? The reality of it is it, it may end up costing you more to not have it set up because the state does have a will in place for folks who don't have their own will in place. That's right. So if you pass away without any sort of testamentary documents or state planning documents, your property is going to pass via statute, um, as well as the statute controls who is going to administer your estate or who's going to act as the executor is what most people know of it as. And so those are just some of the initial hurdles you have to get over, which is deciding who's going to take care of it and then figuring out where it's going to go. And the time and cost associated with that more often than not exceeds the cost related to getting your estate plan in place. So, yeah, it's a it's definitely a plus minus. If you're just looking at it from a dollars and cents perspective, you're going to pay more on the back end than you will up front to get things squared away. And speaking of that dollars and cents part as well, we know that the Internet is wonderful and it has a lot of great tools and advice, but there's also... A lot of people that try to uh, take the easy way out. And let's talk a little bit about the difference between using a professional estate planning attorney versus maybe one of those online plug-and-play kind of boilerplate setups. Right. So those those online um, those online templates, uh, you know, whatever website it may be, can be helpful. Um, and they may work for very basic and simple situations. Um from my perspective, it's always I'm gonna I'm gonna do what makes the most sense for you as a as a client, as a potential client, as a person. And the cost associated with preparation of your documents is gonna reflect that. So if you're simple and straightforward, it's gonna be, you know, relatively cheap, right? Everything's relative. It's gonna be more expensive than an online forum, but I can guarantee you, um, and I was to be a little careful because I don't like to say guarantee because I'm a lawyer and I'm terrified <laughs> of certainty. Um, but I can guarantee you that it will be my estate plan and my documents will be more tailored for your particular situation, which is what you want, um, because there can be a lot of uncertainties. Even if you have something in place, if it's from the Internet or elsewhere, you made it up yourself. That's great. Um, but it's probably not what's needed. Um, and obviously, you know, Rick talked about it earlier, depending on the number of family members you have, 
blended family, first marriage, second marriage, there's a lot of components that go into it. And so you want to make sure everything's accounted for. And so the big difference is it's tailored, right? It's specific to your situation. It allows me to get an understanding of your family makeup, where you want things to go and making sure that that happens. Whereas if you do something online, it'll be helpful in some respects, but it may not accomplish what you ultimately want. And, and kind of looking at that and thinking through all these different places, you know, I know, I know you can go out there online and, and quite frankly, piecemeal pretty much everything in some way, shape, or form out there. When folks are sitting with you and they are working on what we would typically call the estate documents, even though some of them aren't necessarily estate-based, right? We're talking about different types of powers of attorney in there. What are some of those documents that that you're going to help folks come together and, and really figure out, this is what I'm getting, this is what I need, and what do I need to think about putting into these that I might not have gotten that guidance for just filling in the blanks online? So when people come to me and they say, hey, you know, do you draft wills? And I say, yes, I do estate planning. And then the question is, okay, what is estate planning? Well, a will is a a component of an estate plan. And you're right that a lot of the documents, not a lot, but some of the documents we do along with a will aren't necessarily related to your estate and what happens to your things after you pass away. For example, medical power of attorney, financial power of attorney, living will, HIPAA disclosure documents, things like that. And and a lot of those are as important, if not more important than your will, because that governs who's going to take care of you and or your assets while you're alive, if for some reason you're unable to do so on your own, whether it's for medical reason or otherwise. And so that lends a good amount of protection during your life to preserve those assets and safeguard those and safeguard your person um, for when the time ultimately comes. So we tend to talk about a number of different documents. I'm happy to talk about one or more more specifically. Um, But yeah, it's it's looking at where are you at now? Where do you want to be ultimately? And what are some of the things we put in place to protect that between now and then? And, uh, and and as a parent with some uh, technically no longer quote unquote children uh, that are that are not minors, but they are 20 and 23, having that medical power of attorney for the kids that are on your own insurance is a good thing to be able to say, hey, I need this information. I need to know what the insurance is paying for. Even though I've got to have you on it, I'm not allowed to know what's going on unless you've signed that opportunity over to me, right? That's that's a perfect example, Rick. Um, so different situations, right, when we talk about powers of attorney, a lot of people think about aging parents, right? Mom or dad are getting older. We're worried at some point they may not be able to handle either their own medical decisions or medical affairs or their own financial assets and financial decisions. So you put a power of attorney in place so for when that time comes – you as an adult child, as a, as a family member, can take care of those decisions for mom and dad. And legally, the power of attorney is what allows you to do that. The example you brought up is great because we don't think about that a lot of the times for younger generations. You've got a 19-year-old off at college. Maybe they have some bank accounts. They rent a place um, you know, and something happens to them. They are adults um, and, and 
people out there say, well, they're still my kid, and that's true, but they are adults, which means they have their own affairs and their own things. And legally, as a parent, you can't make decisions on their behalf. You can't access bank accounts. You can't deal with their car, potentially. You can't make decisions, you know, with regards to those matters without some legal authority. And that's what a power of attorney allows you to do. And sure, on the medical side, I'd be honest, most medical institutions and doctors are going to allow parents to make decisions with regards to their kids, you know, even if they're over 18. But it all depends on what the third party, the bank, the hospital, the medical provider, the DMV, whoever it is, will or will not allow you to do. And you're better off having a power of attorney in place to make sure you can make those decisions um, if something happens to them. So so as we're going through, as we're thinking through these, uh, maybe I call them the course of life documents, right, that, that we're going to be looking at, your, your living will or your directives or whatever other term that, you know, we're going to throw out there these days, uh, that, that kind of gives the, the overall picture that if you are in uh, a, a situation where you've got life support going on, you, you basically get to say, hey, I want X, Y, Z to happen or ABC not to happen at that point in time. Um, that that medical power of attorney giving folks the actual legal authority in there. Uh, the HIPAA document is actually, I think, an interesting sort of thing. Um, I actually dealt with this a little over a year ago. Had the HIPAA document, spent a couple weeks at the uh, most expensive resort in Flagstaff there, the Flagstaff Medical Center, and they actually had my signed HIPAA document of these are the people that can call and you can give the information to, that was actually very helpful. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's, we talk about dollars and cents. We talk about big picture, but a lot of this comes down to, and I've seen it firsthand. And as you just mentioned, the emotional components that come along with this, which is in the HIPAA document we're talking about is simply a HIPAA disclosure. And you can sign that with any, you know, primary care provider and they probably have that on file. But in your example, you know, you were in Flagstaff, they don't have, some of the documents they might otherwise have. And a HIPAA authorization is typically just who can have access to your medical information. Basically, if I call in about mom, dad, sibling, spouse, whatever it is, I kind of want to know what's going on with them. And the doctor's going to say no, unless you've got a HIPAA disclosure. And so that's kind of a more intermediate document, right? A power of attorney allows them to make medical decisions on your behalf. But some people just want to call and say, you know, hey, I'd like to know what's going on. Can I get some information? And that can be really difficult for people if they can't. And then they've got to reach out to other family members who are already dealing with a lot of stuff. So my goal is to make things easier for you, not only end of life, but during life. And so, yeah, we can call them course of life documents. And they trademark that or something. Um, <laughs> you might know a guy that can do that for you. I do. I've got somebody in the office that handles that intellectual property stuff. It's not me. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, that that's... You know, people don't like talking about this stuff, but life happens, um, and you're better off having them in place than 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 not. Yeah, and uh, and and I will I will say this as somebody who oftentimes has the conversation with folks, and I know we we talk about it here every mm-hmm. single time you're on. You're not supposed to have that reading of the will, quote unquote, by showing up in the attorney's office to find out what was in it. This is something that as mom and dad, even as the kids to aging parents, 
You want to have that discussion well in advance and have it more than one time, uh, maybe as a reminder, whether that's as the kids have gotten older or as there are grandkids in the picture, or if I've made changes and why I've made these changes. I, I tell folks all the time, these are the things that you need to be in there talking about. It should not be a surprise to anybody, whatever goes on. And I always get the same question back. Well, how do I start that conversation? So, Evan, what should I tell him? How, how do we start that conversation? Well, not to make light of the situation, but you say, hey, kids, let's talk about what you're going to get when mom and dad die. <laughs> no, I mean, it. I think we're going to hit the first one is it depends. Um, <laughs> That's one. It's been quite a while. A <laughs> it's been quite a while. I mean, it's been a long time so far for me to, to say that for the yeah. first time, but it depends on the family, right, and how you typically communicate about those things. Um, but really just saying, hey, you know, we just went to the attorney's office. We got some documents in place. We've kind of planned these things out, and we need to, to let you all know what's going on. Um, because if not, again, just having the document isn't enough, right? And the estate planning, it's not for you. It's for your family, right, because they're the ones that will have to deal with it. So I've had situations where people – have a document, they've got a will, they've done all of that, but they never said word one to their to their family about it. And so what happens is adult son or daughter comes in and says, hey, I've been appointed as the executor, as the personal representative of mom and dad's estate. Okay, great. I have no idea what they owned. I don't know who their accountant is. I don't know where they have bank accounts. Um, and so my answer is go home and check their filing cabinet check their mail and what happens is is that family then ends up in kind of a scavenger hunt mode of trying to track Mm -hmm. down these assets and so part of the planning is i can put all the documents in place and then i recommend as you mentioned to clients to go out and talk with whoever your representatives are your executor to make sure they're aware that they're going to have to do that or i'd even recommend you ask them before you put them in place to make sure they're comfortable with that And that's kind of piece one. And then piece two is you just even keep kind of like a cheat sheet of accounts. Who's your accountant? Who's your lawyer? Who's your financial planner? Those three things in and of itself are helpful for the next generation to say, okay, well, I'm not 100% sure, but I can call a financial planner. He or she is going to have a great snapshot of mom and dad's finances and assets. So, you know, probably getting a little far afield, which is what lawyers tend to do, but um, (laughs) just... And I think it's a generational thing. You don't want to point to that. But I've found that some clients of prior generations aren't comfortable having those conversations with kids. Um, and I say kids as in, you know, adult children. Um, but it's it's really important because, again, it's who's going to have to deal with it when you pass. And some people say, you know what, I won't be here, so it's not my problem. Um, but if you're taking the steps to come talk to me, you know, I think you can take those further steps and just be open and honest about where things are. Well, and kind of with that inverse, you know, from that adult child perspective, knowing that you're probably going to be in that position with an aging parent, what advice? I know you're a lawyer, not maybe a family therapist, but uh, <laughs> be surprised how often those two blur. <laughs> yeah. So, what? How would you address that conversation as far as making sure that that aging parent? 
might have their, for lack of a better term, act in order, have their ducks in a row. So when you have to have that inevitable step and when you have to come in, that you actually know what's laid out or that something's actually done. Yeah, I found the issue, the more I do this, to be the control component. And that's where we've talked a lot about powers of attorney and and parents tend to push back against those a lot of the time because they're like, well, I'm giving up control, right? And that's not going to be the case for most of these documents. So powers of attorney that we do are typically what I call springing powers of attorney. So you sign the power of attorney, so the power of attorney is valid at the time they sign, but it does not give your designated individual the power to manage your affairs unless and until something happens to you. And so I think part of that conversation is, look, we're going to have to deal with this no matter what. Yeah. Right. And it can be difficult or it can be easy. Um, And so if we have to deal with it, let's just go, let's get an idea of what things look like, because that's what I'm always happy to do. People come in, they say, hey, I just want to get more information. Happy to do that. Happy to have follow-up conversations with you until you're ready to move forward. And so, you know, there's no perfect answer, but talking to your your parents or whoever and saying, listen, this is something that's going to have to be addressed no matter what. And I have some questions and I don't know what to do. And I want to make sure that what I do is what you want, Mm -hmm. right? Kind of turning it back to what do you want? Because I don't know what you want and I don't know what to do unless you tell me or you tell somebody and we can put that on paper. And that again goes back to that control component of, all right, well, if you turn it back and say, okay, well, maybe I do want to make sure that what I want happens. Um, and so that that I've found has been somewhat effective. Well, and we got the holidays coming up too. So what a better time. Like, hey, get all the family together. Hey, would you pass the rolls? Pops, you got uh, you got your docs in order? I mean, what's going to happen here? <laughs> Could you pass the salt? And also, do you have a will um, <laughs> to make sure we know what we're supposed to do? No, I mean, it's not the worst time, you know, and it's uh, the sentimental time to some, you know, to some extent emotional but um yeah i mean that's the other thing too is you've got adult kids and they just don't communicate with mom and dad a lot sometimes um and so anytime you're together and you've got questions about that i think it's it's worth just talking with them and i know that you know older generations may push back but the best you can do is try so when when we are kind of going through this and and you know whether whether it's us as parents talking with our kids or it's us as the kids uh, talking with our our parents, if we find out they don't have anything in place, Evan, what what is the best way to kind of maybe have that conversation rather than just going well here's here's Evan's card call him uh, to to get that conversation started on our side of things that. Well, here's kind of the why, and here are some things that you need to think about maybe before you call Evan. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that there's a perfect answer, uh, but a lot of it is, you know, I don't mean to be repetitive, but it's a, you know, if we don't have things in place, what is going to happen, right? And we don't know what's going to happen, and and you don't know what's going to happen, and so let's try and resolve some of that uncertainty, you know, for me, for you, for mom, for dad. Um, and that's that's a big one too, I think. And we see less of it, but you have some of those prior generations where say dad is the one that had all the accounts in his name um, or owned the home individually. And so 
let's do this for mom's sake, right? Um, let's do this for finding, just finding some sort of common ground with your parent to say, this is why it's important and you're going to know your family better than anyone else. And so kind of just identifying the area of, okay, well, what are the issues and why is it an issue and, and why is it important to them um, to make sure that, you know, surviving spouse is taken care of, adult children are taken care of. And depending on the makeup of your family, that could mean a number of things. Awesome. Well, folks, we are up against that break in today's show. When we come back, we will continue talking about estate planning here with Evan Withrow from Steiner, Zenday Hospital, and Wilhelmy right here on Money Matters. Stick around. We will be right back. Are you worried about what's been going on in the markets and how it has affected your portfolio? Maybe you need a financial checkup. If you have questions about the health of your financial future, call FRS Financial Group at 719-500-8700 to schedule your complimentary checkup. And remember to tune into Money Matters presented by FRS Financial Group here on KRDO, Saturday mornings at 9 and Sunday at noon. Products and services offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Well, folks, thanks for sticking with us through that break right here on Money Matters presented by FRS Financial Group. Rick Stevens with you in studio with my co-host Andrew Rogers and our guest Evan Withrow of Steiner Burrell. Wilhelmies and Dejas. Something 80, in that 80, order. 85 other guys in there. But those are the four guys on the partner, and, and you can tell Jim that I gave him uh, bottom building <laughs> instead of uh, middle this I, time. I think more of the issue is that there's no Withrow in those four names. But <laughs> I don't know if that's my fault or their fault at this point. I mean, uh, is there room on like the top of the door for it at this point? Yeah, I mean, our business cards, the font is so small, you wouldn't know where I worked at this yeah. point. So. <laughs> Well, and I mean, Withrow is too common to fit in with the rest of those two. Yeah, well, that's what I tell people is you can't just have like Clark and Williams, you know, the law offices of Clark and Williams. It's got to yeah. be just a mess of words and letters. And so we've we've lived up to that cliche. <laughs> uh, well, folks, we are talking with Evan about all kinds of estate planning sort of things. Uh, just kind of went through in that first segment of the show some of those estate planning documents that are out there, some of those we're living right now documents that you need. Uh, Talked a little bit about that conversation that you can have not only with your kids, but even with your parents as well. And and Evan, I want to get into some, I guess I'll call them some general estate planning concepts, maybe, uh, is a a good way to put that. and, and I, I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, because I have been wrong before, except don't tell my wife, because she'll <laughs> probably hold that against me. Um, there are oftentimes two sides of that estate planning coin. One of them is the wealth preservation side. The other is the tax, uh, not, uh, let's see, what is it? It's not evasion, it's avoidance, right? Uh, preparation. We're, we're, yes, preparation. So one of them's really on the tax side of it. The other one is on the preservation side of the wealth of the assets. A- a- am I missing anything? And and those two worlds kind of blur a little bit too, right? Sure. Yeah, they absolutely blur. And, and where we come in versus where someone like you, Rick, comes in is obviously the wealth preservation, wealth growth um, is going to be more your side of the coin. And then what we call it is, <clears throat> excuse me, we call it is tax planning. Um, and so 
again, this kind of goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning, which is a lot of people don't have the need for tax planning, at least in Colorado. So Colorado is a state that does not have a state-specific estate tax or inheritance tax. Uh, It's simply all we have to worry about is the federal estate tax, um, which is, again, right now 12.9 million, going to be 13.6. Sure, there's going to be a few individuals, a few lucky individuals that may have some tax planning to do come 2026. Um, But yeah, we look at some tax planning uh, mechanisms and, and, you know, we'll get into a little bit of what that looks like, but the two, the two definitely blur. And as you preserve and accumulate wealth, um, it becomes more of a issue to have to deal with. And, and one of those, one of those tools uh, that, that you guys have at your disposal in, in looking at and working with that is that trust world. And, and I know that there are two basic kinds of trusts, if you will. And, and, no, Andrew, I, this might come as a shock, but in the legal world, they've kind of simplified this a bit. I know it's legal. Yeah. I know. <laughs> but it's revocable or irrevocable. And I think the trusts all pretty much fall in one of those two categories, but the the um, abundance of one has changed over the years. A- a- am I right with that, Evan? Yes, you are right. Um, That's like two yeses in a row I got out of him. <laughs> there are, I will give you that there are two general categories of trusts, revocable and irrevocable. That being said, the different types of, especially when you get into the irrevocable situation, um, is, I wouldn't say endless, but there's a lot there. Um, and so we, we can scratch the surface a little bit on the difference between the two. Uh, the types of trusts, on the irrevocable side, especially, uh, get very specific, but there are certain situations in which they're needed. And what would be the kind of key, you know, kind of looking at that saying whether or not you should look at a revocable or irrevocable trust? So I'll tell you that probably 90 plus percent of the trust work I do, um, or that will fit most people, let me put it that way, is going to be a revocable living trust. And that's because a revocable living trust is an alternative to a will. So a revocable living trust, one of the primary reasons for a revocable living trust, and I always have to make sure I say a revocable, because then if I I blend the words together, it starts to sound like irrevocable. Um, But a revocable living trust is something that avoids the probate process in Mm -hmm. Colorado. So you don't have any court involvement whatsoever once somebody passes away. So a revocable living trust is typically an estate planning vehicle for what happens um, at end of life. Irrevocable trusts tend to be more of that tax planning mechanism or special needs trusts or charitable trusts, things that you can put in place during your lifetime for specific purposes. The added benefit that comes along with irrevocable trusts typically is that you're going to save on potential taxes if you have a taxable estate, because when you put something in an irrevocable trust, it is irrevocable. It is no longer in your estate. It gets put into that trust and you've structured it in such a way, but you are not the beneficiary of that trust, right? You're not the person that controls it anymore. Whereas a revocable living trust, you can set that up for estate planning purposes and then you can actually revoke it. And so not to make this one of the world's longest answers, but rather than uh, distract myself too much, the one misconception I get a lot is if I put a revocable living trust 
in place, then it has a tax advantage. That is not true. So a revocable living trust for the IRS purposes are the same as if you had a will for estate tax purposes. So it does not have any sort of preferential tax treatment. And that's because a revocable living trust, it's as if you still own everything. It's just housed under the trust for probate avoidance purposes. So then what would be, you know, maybe this is a kind of step back, but kind of knowing those two and kind of have they have the same role, but not what would be that, you know, maybe difference or deciding factor as far as who would look at a will versus that uh, revocable living trust for that estate planning side of things? Great question. Uh, everybody's a little bit different, but <laughs> that's an it depends. That's an it depends. That, that I'm counting counts. it. I'm counting I, that. I worked so hard. You, you, if you were in here, you could see smoke coming out of my ears. I worked so hard to avoid saying it depends, but <laughs> it counts anyways. Um, so everyone is a little bit different. Um, but I think a lot of it comes down to the probate component. People tend to hear horror stories about probate. And a lot of the times it's because there's a conflict of some kind or it's happened in a different state. Colorado is a fairly straightforward probate state. It's not supervised by the court. Um, so it's, it's relatively simple. I will say that typically you do end up getting a lawyer involved to assist you with the process. So there are some steps, but a lot of people like the component of a trust, a revocable living trust, because you don't have to do anything with the courts when the person dies. You can simply distribute assets out of the trust. Whereas if you have a will, you do have to formally get appointed as the executor or personal representative by the court before you can start taking actions related to mom or dad, brothers, sisters, estate assets. And so that's a big one. Um, probate avoidance is one of the main reasons why people do a revocable living trust versus a will. The others, if you own out of state property, like real property, um, because if you own property in another state, you're going to have to open a probate case in Colorado and then a secondary or ancillary probate in the other state. So the idea behind a revocable living trust, and I know I haven't been on in a while, and we've talked about it some, but the simplest concept I can say is when you form a revocable living trust, all of your assets are retitled into the name of the trust. Again, from a tax perspective, ownership perspective, nothing really changes. It's just the name on the title is the name of your trust. And that's what allows it to all be handled under Colorado law, under the trust, so that you don't have to worry about probate procedures in another state. So those are kind of the two main components I see most often. Yeah, and, and one of those things that I know I have seen some clients kind of run up against is that while they, they, they you know, maybe have a parent who has passed who, who lived in Colorado but had property elsewhere, uh, they did not have any sort of a trust set up, but they've also, that property was actually in a community property state uh, where, you know, the, the folks who owned it may not have necessarily been married, but it became community property after they had been together long enough. That runs into some of those issues as well, which brings up some of the contested pieces in the probate world and, and can get very ugly at times, right? Right, absolutely. And I think the other thing to think about is that I tell people is if there's going to be a potential dispute most likely you're going to have it, whether you have a will or a trust in place. That being said, when you have a will, 
and you open a probate, if someone wants to challenge something, it's as easy as mailing in an objection or your claim to the courthouse or going by the courthouse to drop it off because the proceeding is already open. With a trust, you don't open any sort of court proceeding. So if someone wants to bring a challenge, it likely means going to an attorney, hiring them, spending multiple thousands of dollars to draft an initial petition or complaint of some kind to file with the court. So I will say it does dissuade folks from bringing challenges. But to your point, Rick, every state has different procedures. A lot of states are similar to Colorado in terms of simple probates. California is not one of those. Neither is Florida. That's where I've had folks deal with the community property. Yes, community property. And so you see a lot of folks that come from California that have a trust. And I'd say a trust, a revocable living trust is the norm in California. And that's just because of the probate process down there is expensive. It's more complicated. Florida is another example. But one of the reasons down there is attorneys um, can actually take a percentage of the estate when they do probate cases. Um, and so depending on the size of your estate, attorney's fees could be very, very costly. We're talking like tens of thousands of dollars. Oof. Whereas here in Colorado, we don't do that. There is no option for that. So, you know, we bill on an hourly basis when we do probates, but the likelihood that a probate administration is going to exceed, say, $10,000 is very, very rare. Whereas that tends to be the norm in a lot of, a lot of states. And so, you see folks that in different places that have different documents, and that's because, and again, that goes back to why come in and talk to me? Because maybe you've moved from somewhere else, and I'm happy to sit down. I'll look at your documents, typically free of charge, and say, hey, we do need to make some changes here because what you've got in place is really out of character for Colorado, and it's unnecessary, and it's complicated, so maybe we simplify it, or you're good to go. Um, I'm not one to say let's let's change it just to change it, but it it just comes down to who you are, where you came from, and what you got. So it depends. Yep. <laughs> uh, you know, one of those one of those <laughs> things I am seeing and hearing about more and more from clients, and, and I'm not sure who's doing the advertising on this part, uh, but but there's stuff coming out about how you know rather than setting up a a family trust. You need to set up a family LLC to put all of the property and all of the assets and that sort of stuff in because the the selling points always say, because that's the way the Rockefellers did it. Right. And, and the first thing I always look at is you realize that was like 150 years ago and things have changed. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's number one. And then, you know, because I don't know if it's the Gen Xer in me, if it's the financial guy in me, but I always look look at that with the okay, who's going to make money if I put this in an LLC instead of a trust? So there, there's that little you know, side eye I've got going on there. So I guess the, the, the real big question to this is, is there a time where it's better for me to set up a family LLC for all of this to pass things on for estate purposes versus setting up a, a trust in that, in that process? Maybe. <laughs> is that good enough? Um, that's four. That's four. <laughs> <laughs> so situation dependent, as always. Um, and and to answer your earlier question of who makes money on those things, it's typically the lawyers, right? Um, no. I, so there are 
different tools for different families. And again, you guys are going to get another one and we're probably at the over at this point is it depends on <laughs> the family. It depends on the asset. It depends on your net worth. Yes, there are mega wealthy individuals that have certain planning techniques, um, whether it's irrevocable trusts, whether it's family limited partnerships, whether it's LLCs, and they'll have them in different states depending on what trust state or what the law in a particular state says about trusts. Because there are states that have uniform trust codes like Colorado that are uniform across multiple states, but there are certain places, same concept behind why people form businesses or LLCs in Delaware, right? Or other states, because theoretically there's benefits to that. I will tell you that if you don't want to go to the full-blown revocable living trust, say for property that's owned out of state, doing a Colorado LLC is cheaper and it's simpler and that will avoid an ancillary probate. So I've had folks that come in, maybe they already have an estate plan in place, but then they realize, hey, we just inherited our share of a ranch in for example, for me, I grew up in Montana. My family owns a farm back there. If I were to inherit that, I've got a will-based estate plan. Does it mean I'm going to restructure everything and do a trust? No, I'll probably form an LLC. And then my LLC will own that interest in the other state so that when I pass, I'm passing, my estate passes the interest in the business here in Colorado versus actually having to deal with transfer of title of the property in the other state. So there are times where LLCs make sense. I will tell you pretty unequivocally that the idea behind forming a family LLC to house all of your assets does not make sense to me. I don't see any reasoning behind that. Um, There are other alternatives like a family limited partnership. um, And those are done for tax planning perspectives or for tax planning reasons a lot of the times. But um, also, if you want to get your family involved in, you know, part of a family business, if uh, if there's an asset that makes sense. So there's a lot of different tools at our disposal. I'm not going to say that there aren't lawyers out there. I I phrase that really poorly. There are lawyers out there that are going to sell you a bag of goods and say this is the best way to go. But when you're looking at the Rockefellers, you're looking at these high net worth individuals. They're going to spend fifteen, twenty thousand to save half a million bucks, right? For most folks, you're going to spend that same amount of money to probably not save that much, right? It's all situation dependent, and I'm not going to be one to say, well, hey, because I'm going to make more money off of this, this is what we'll do. If a revocable living trust makes sense for you, great. If we have to look at other tax planning components, a lot of the times it does make sense if you're in taxable territory because the estate tax is like 40%, right? And so- do you want to spend 10 to 15 grand on certain legal documents to save a hundred? Absolutely. Right. The numbers make sense. But for most folks, sometimes they'll get fit into documents that don't make sense for them. And that's, uh, that's another thing that I've kind of run into a time or two uh, are the folks who, you know, have not necessarily gone the LLC route, but have done that trust sort of thing. And they're having the discussion and, and whether it's, Purely not understanding on the individual's part, or it could be a lack of understanding on the attorney's part. I've had folks who have asked me to change the way that their IRA is titled because the trust is now going to own everything. And I've had to have that discussion with them that the trust is not going to retire. The trust is not the one saving money on taxes 
either now or in the future. It's you, the individual. The trust can't own the retirement account. It can't own the IRA. It can't own the 401k, the 457, the TSP, none of that, because the trust isn't the one working. However, we can name the trust as the beneficiary of that and then run it through that whole trust process. Right. And the idea behind it, you know, it was very general in terms of the trust sort of owns everything, but really it's you want everything to be under the umbrella of the trust. And so where the trust can be named, like your house, so that's a big one, is we'll actually file a deed transferring ownership from you as individuals into the name of the trust. Again, there's no taxable event there. There's no effect from uh, an ownership standpoint. It's just merely a titling difference. That's why a revocable living trust in some ways is kind of a legal fiction in that it has absolute merit and value and purpose for estate planning reasons. But you think, well, if I'm putting it in the name of the trust, then don't we have to file a tax return for the trust? The answer is no. If it's a revocable living trust, the answer is yes. If it's an irrevocable trust, but your example of making sure that the client understands that if it can't be owned by the trust, we still want everything to flow through the trust. For example, the beneficiary being the trust. So when it pays out, it pays out to the trust and then it goes out to the beneficiaries under your trust. So that's also part of the process we assist with. And I've seen it before um, in that people form a trust and then they don't retitle assets, right? Or they don't change beneficiary designations. And then you spent whatever it is, three, five, seven, eight, ten thousand $10,000 on all of this trust, and then you don't have it funded. So you're going to probate anyways. And so that's where when we put a trust in place, we pick up the phone and talk to the financial planner and say, hey, we've got this new trust. What accounts do they have and what can we do? Right. Because, yeah, an IRA a trust can't own an IRA. It's got to be an individual. So we look at what's the alternative. And so those are all part of this. And so, you know, making sure you, you dot your I's and cross your T's. And that uh, that also kind of takes us uh, a little bit here into that there, there is a difference between someone who is named as a beneficiary on an account versus someone who is named as a beneficiary in a will or in, in a trust. Because if I've got an IRA or a Roth IRA and I've named a beneficiary in that, that's a contractual obligation that that company has. That passes totally outside of probate. Versus if I wrote in my will that, you know, this kid gets this portion of this retirement account. Well, if my if my beneficiary on that retirement account doesn't say the same thing, what it says in the will doesn't actually matter, right? Right. And I this I don't know if you hear this enough, Rick. I appreciate you. <laughs> Andrew never says it. And the reason for that is is because when I said beneficiary twice there, I, I realized that that could be confusing. And so it's almost like you read my mind that we needed to clarify that because you have what are called um, testamentary assets and non-testamentary assets, or we could call them probate assets. But if you have a trust, it's not a probate. So you have testamentary assets that, as you mentioned, are controlled by the will or the trust. And then you have assets that pass automatically by law or by contract. For example, beneficiary designations. So that's another reason why we sit down and we say, you know, I don't need to know all of the details, you know, hey, how much money's in your bank account today? But I do need to know 
what accounts do you have and where the beneficiary designations on that? Because unfortunately, you'll have situations where people sit down and say, I want to give X amount of dollars to this child or to a cousin or to whoever in their will, but then all of their liquid assets go via beneficiary designation. So what do we do about these specific gifts? Or maybe it's unequal. I've got, you know, two kids 50-50 on the IRA and I've got it 70-30 in the will. The beneficiary designation in the account that's contractual controls over the will. And that's where people can get confused and you can have inconsistencies. And that's one of the big things we always say is, okay, well, this is how we've set it up here, but I need you to check on your beneficiary designations with your financial planner for your investment accounts, for your life insurance, for your 401k, because those may not meet up. And that's part of the reason why when we do a revocable living trust plan is we just kind of scrap all of the beneficiary designations on the investment side, on the beneficiary designation side for accounts and policies and just list it as the trust because that ensures everything flows into the trust and out to the beneficiaries as you want it. It also is a little less work for everybody because it all just goes to one place. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, I'm, I am a firm believer that simpler is better, you know, not having, you know, four different tax people that I bounce something off of and somebody for my homeowner's insurance and somebody for the insurance on a mm-hmm. rental property and somebody else for insurance on a vehicle, but to have those things all housed in a single place to be able to go and have that one point of contact, again, trying to make things simple through there. What are a couple of other maybe simple things that that you help folks to kind of think through here as we're wrapping up the show Simple things you help them to think through on that estate planning side. So beneficiary designation is one. I mean, there are folks that want to avoid probate, and we may have the ability to do that without a revocable living trust. So it can come down to something as simple as beneficiary designations on your financial accounts. People don't think a lot about like run-of-the-mill bank accounts when they talk about that. And typically banks refer to that as a POD or payable on death designation. But you can do the same thing with a bank account. Um, you can actually do a transfer of title upon death uh, form for your cars, for your vehicles. And then you can also look at potentially doing a beneficiary's deed for your house, which is a transfer of, of deed upon death. Um, so there are different ways um, to look at how assets move. And a lot of the times if you have a will-based estate plan and you've handled everything via beneficiary designations other than the house, it actually makes probate simpler. Right, because then all we have to worry about is transfer of the home. Um, I will caution people uh, against some things that I tend to see, which is, oh, well, I'll just put son or daughter on my bank account. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, then when you pass, that's their account. So if they have siblings and you've talked to them, they say, yeah, 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 of course, I'll give them their share. They don't have to, right? The hope Mm -hmm. is, is that they will, but death and money do funny things to people. Um, The same can be said for title on home. Please do not put your family member on title to your home. And one of the reasons for that is tax related. Um, They're going to get hammered um, if they don't pay you to be on title, right? If it's a transfer, um, just to put them on title for what you think is convenient, it may actually be more harmful in the long run from a financial perspective. So there's a few easy things we can do, but there are a few things that you shouldn't do as well. Awesome. Well, Evan... If folks have those questions, if they would like to, uh, you know, maybe get through the holidays and say it's it's on my uh, New Year's resolution uh, list 
to get this estate plan put together, get some things in place. How do they go about calling you to get some of this stuff moving? So the name of our firm is formally Steiners and Dejas Burrell and Wilhelmi. Most people in town know of us just simply as Steiners and Dejas um, because they've been around the longest. That's because John and Jim are old. <laughs> That's the, yeah, mm-hmm. I was trying, trying to be judicious about it, but yeah. <laughs> He's they, trying to get his I name in there with him. I didn't have to be judicious. <laughs> they have a lot of experience in practicing law. Um, but Steiners and Dejas, our phone number is 719-635-4200. You can just give a call there and uh, ask for Evan. They'll put you in touch. Um, yeah, that's the easiest way is just give a call, ask for me specifically, and, and we can find a time to chat. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Evan, thank you for joining us on Money Matters. It, it, it has been probably six months, so there were, there were some other uh, you know questions that have come up in that meantime. We'll have to have you back before then because I promise – I'll have more questions and I'll place them hypothetically because yeah. Andrew and I would never ask questions that we. We really got a have. lot of friends with a lot of business. Yes, yes. Well, well, a lot of friends. Maybe next time I'll appear on the show pro bono. So. <laughs> Just kidding. I appear without fee every time. Uh, because, yeah, really, do we want to pay for this advice? Yes, yes, we do. Some say it's worth what we pay. (laughs) Uh, Awesome. Well, folks, that's all the time we've got for this week on Money Matters. We will be back again next week. We will be continuing to talk about your money because your money matters. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. 